Welcome to episode 50, Expressive Arts Therapy and Trauma Recovery by Dr. Jamie Marriage. From Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. I'd like you to listen carefully as I share three words with you. As you hear these words, consider listening with your body. Notice the impact that each word has when you hear it on your body, on your whole experience, trying not to be too analytical. Are you ready? The first word is express. The second word is expression. And the third word is expressive. So once more, express, expression, expressive. Of these three, I challenge you to pick one that seems to have the most resonance with you. And then hold that version of the word in your awareness, express, expression, or expressive. And see if you can challenge yourself to maybe make a movement or a gesture that represents what you're noticing about this word. Another way I can ask the question is, what does it mean to you to express? What does it mean to you to have expression? What does it mean to you to be expressive? So take a deep breath, take a moment, and see if you can let your movement take over. So you may be doing this quite freely right now, and you may be freaking out. You may be saying, hey, I thought I was just going to put on this podcast and listen and just learn a couple things about expressive arts therapy, and I wouldn't have to do deep things like this. Well, rest assured, um, anything I offer in the rest of this podcast is certainly optional. Yet to truly unpack the topic that we're going to be talking about today, expressive arts therapy, it really would help you get the most out of the content if you're willing to learn by some doing. Expressive arts therapy is a topic that I can lecture at you on, that I can talk about, and you will hopefully learn a few things through that process. Yet you really learn expressive arts therapy by willingness to engage in these processes of expression, expressiveness, to realize your own innate capacity to express. And people ask me all the time, well, what do I need to practice expressive arts therapy with my clients? And quite frankly, so much of that skill and capacity comes from your own ability to nurture an expressive arts therapy practice. So welcome to this podcast, this version of Clearly Clinical today, as I will lead you through and acquaint you with some of the principles of expressive arts therapy. My name is Dr. Jamie Marich, and I'm a specialist in the area of trauma and addiction. I practice several different forms of therapy, most notably EMDR therapy, where I'm a trainer, and I've been trained in many other traditional modalities. I've done a lot with 12-step facilitation work in the area of addiction. However, the most fun that I have in the work that I get to do as a clinician and in the work that I get to do in the community is with the expressive arts.
And that will certainly be the topic of what we'll be covering today. My hope in this podcast is to give you a little bit of a background on what constitutes formal expressive arts therapy, particularly in the context of what expressive arts means in general. Then I will explain why expressive arts therapy is especially an effective tool, an effective adjunct that can be used along many other different approaches to therapy, particularly when we're working with trauma. And if you're so willing to engage in a little bit of exploration, we will actually go through a very condensed expressive arts process right here on the podcast, exploring a clinical concept that many of us know very well, which is grounding. So just a little bit of my background, other than what I shared with you already uh, from a professional perspective, uh, I will say the expressive arts have been with me since quite literally before I was born. There's a very funny story where my mother talks about taking disco lessons when she was pregnant with me. And maybe that's the reason that I came out of the womb as such a dancer and dance has always been one of the big threads that have spoken to me, that has spoken to me. And I had an expressive arts therapy student say to me once, I feel like I came out of the womb with a paintbrush. And I answered that saying, well, I feel like I came out of the womb dancing to ABBA. And yeah, that's that's just a little bit of really who I am as, as a person, that dance has been with me. Uh, remember, I, I've also created and developed a specific approach to dancing, a, a specific approach to expressive arts therapy called dancing mindfulness. And in that approach, we use dance and freeform movement as a way to explore concepts and principles of mindfulness so as not to shove away emotion or distress, but to use the dance to work with um, whatever may be coming up in the present moment. And when people ask me, well, how did you come up with that idea for dancing mindfulness? I often like to share. First of all, I didn't come up with it because I find that dance and mindfulness are two of the oldest and most revered healing and practices on the planet. And I will certainly be talking more about that when we look at origins of expressive arts therapy. Uh, so I definitely didn't come up with dancing mindfulness. It's just a program I've kind of put together to have a real systematized way to teach some of these processes in a trauma-informed setting. Because I believe dancing mindfulness as an as a idea, as a way of life, has been with me all along. I remember growing up in you know, a rather high-conflict home that being able to take refuge in my basement playroom where there was a record player where I can play Mickey Mouse record. I had a Mickey Mouse record player and I played Disney records and some other types of records on there too. And I would just dance and create my own world. Uh, and that really helped me to cope with what was going on in the world in which I was living. And for you, maybe you had a similar experience with painting or writing or any of the other expressive practices that we're going to discuss. So whether you think you're a newcomer to expressive arts therapy or not, it could be that it's been with you all along. And part of what learning about expressive arts therapy can help you to do is um, tap in to that essence of expression, expressiveness, or to express that really is your birthright. All right. So one of the questions I get off the bat when we're discussing expressive arts therapy as well, is it like art therapy? And I've already told you that I developed and work in a program called Dancing Mindfulness, and I get a question quite often with that, well, is that like dance therapy or movement therapy? And the short answer is no. Uh, 
with full respect to the disciplines and the organizations that govern art therapy, dance therapy, music therapy, expressive arts takes a little bit of a different twist. By definition, expressive arts therapy works with an all of the above approach, approach to creative practices. So an expressive arts therapist, although we may have a predominant art modality or creative modality in which we've worked, an expressive arts therapist is not a one trick pony, so to speak. And practicing expressive arts therapy is not about just staying in your comfort zone. So by definition, expressive arts therapy is characterized as both multimodal and intermodal. So we're working with all of the different forms of creativity and expression, such as, and this is a short list, dance movement, art, and all of the different ways that you can express visually, uh, painting, drawing, collage, pottery, or just a short list, writing, uh, could be journal writing, it could be poetry, fiction, scene writing, even nonfiction, uh, music, it could be playing music, exploring music and sound, it could be listening to music, uh, in expressive arts, we also talk about certain forms of meditation practice being expressive, particularly if you're working with guided visualization or meditation forms that really help you use the power of your imagination quite a bit. And in my work in expressive arts therapy, I really take an even broader approach and I consider things like cooking and clothing design, filmmaking, gardening, all as expressive practices. And in the practice of expressive arts, and then in clinical context, you can call it expressive arts therapy, we're working with as many of the combinations as possible. So for example, when you're working with a client, you may start with an expressive practice for them that feels most agreeable to them. So if a person's like, nah, I don't want to dance, music doesn't really appeal to me, but yeah, I like to write when I get depressed. That may be an area where you can truly meet them where they're at when it comes to creative or expressive practice. But then something we would like to do with people eventually is to get them to step outside of their comfort zone when it comes to maybe exploring some other creative practices or expressive practices. And just to share with you a little of my kind of background with it, I talked to you about how dance and music were very important to me. And so I've done dance, music, theater all through life. And I've always seen, and I've been a writer, and I've always seen visual art as more of my weak link. Yet in studying the expressive arts, it's been fascinating that I've been really encouraged and challenged to explore uh, my visual side. And as a result, I realized, well, you know, okay, I'm not as bad as I thought, because so often it's that metric of being judged that keeps us from approaching a certain expressive practice. And I've also found that stepping out of my comfort zone and working with visual has actually had the most to teach me, because I've never equated visual work with any kind of performance expectation, like some of the other artistic forms that I mentioned. So there's a lot of power that can be had in eventually learning to approach the one creative or expressive form that is outside of your comfort zone. And when we talk about the idea here of an expressive arts process, it's really about combining several different practices together 
realizing how they may all interconnect, hence this idea of intermodality and how they can inform each other uh, in helping us work on what we need to work on or learn what we need to learn. So the formal field of expressive arts therapy has that first characterization I've explored here, multimodal, multi-art orientation, uh, and intermodal as well. The focus in expressive arts therapy is always on this idea of process. We kind of overuse that word process sometimes in expressive arts therapy, which for me is one of the great connections to why it's so effective in trauma work. Um, but the focus is never on outcome. It's rarely, if ever, on this idea of analysis and looking so deeply into what a piece may mean. But it's really using this premise that we as human beings all have something to express. And from that practice of expression, we help guide ourselves towards what we need to learn, towards what we need to work on. And the facilitator of an expressive arts process, whether you're a therapist or another professional, really is just that, a facilitator. They're guiding you through your own process of exploration. So as a formal kind of clinical uh, community organization, Expressive Arts is presently governed by an organization called the International Expressive Arts Therapy Association, which was founded in the early 90s. And this is one of the many reasons why I personally gravitated to expressive arts therapy as opposed to dance therapy or music therapy, which are two forms that I had also looked at because of a lot of my clinical and professional interests in those areas. That expressive arts therapy does not credit the field as having any one founder. Rather that the field, the practice of expressive arts emerged from a variety of perspectives, both clinical and non-clinical, and there were a variety of contributing individuals to making what we now call expressive arts therapy. And indeed, expressive arts therapy is largely regarded by the organization as being indigenous in its origins. Indeed, the 2017 uh, International Conference of the International Expressive Arts Therapy Association was clearly themed the indigenous roots of expressive arts therapy. And that's something that I really admire and respect, this notion that what we're doing with expression today in clinical settings is nothing new. It's nothing anybody invented in the 20th century, that our founding fathers and mothers and peoples were attuned to this idea of using practices like dancing and drumming and singing and storytelling as the ultimate healing experience. And really what we're doing in modern times is kind of going back to some of those basics of healing and helping to align that with clinical goals and objectives and outcomes um, to really create this beautiful fusion as I, as I feel between what modern clients need and what ancient tradition has taught us. So there are a couple figures in the 20th century who really are kind of considered to be, you know, mothers, fathers, leaders in bringing expressive arts practices into, into greater focus. And one of those influences on many of us is an individual named Angelus Orion. Uh, their book, The, Full, the Fourfold Way, 
which most recent edition was published in 2013, is a composite study, but also written into a very practical guide about their work with indigenous cultures really throughout the globe and looking at what the four or five kind of main healing threads are in looking at what our First Nations and First People have found as healing. And a very common aspect in Orion's work, also sometimes attributed uh, to Gabrielle Roth, with whom they worked closely. Uh, Gabrielle Roth is the creator of the Five Rhythms Movement and often seen as the mother of this kind of conscious dance movement. Uh, but both uh, Angelus Orion and Gabrielle Roth talk about this idea of the four healing salves uh, as themes that have really permeated throughout uh, indigenous life in the healing arts. So those four healing salves are storytelling, singing, dancing, and silence. And this is a passage that you may have even seen around the social media sphere. It's often shows up as a meme. Uh, and I'm just going to read it to you because I think it's a really good uh, encapsulation of what Orion and Roth and others have are kind of getting at when they talk about the indigenous roots of expressive arts therapy. Healers throughout the world recognize the importance of maintaining or retrieving the four universal salves, storytelling, singing, dancing, and silence. Shamanic societies believe that when we stop singing, stop dancing, are no longer enchanted by stories or become uncomfortable with silence. We experience soul loss, which opens the door to discomfort and dis-ease. The gifted healer restores the soul through use of the healing salves. So that is something to consider. And maybe even looking at that question as a bit of a holistic assessment tool. When did you stop singing? When did you stop dancing? When did you stop becoming uncomfortable? Or when did you stop becoming comfortable with storytelling or silence? And uh, a story that I'm often reminded of when I consider this question as assessment is to think how natural it is for most young, young children to be able to sing and to dance. There's this very classic story that's often told in the educational literature about a researcher who went to a group of six-year-olds, first graders, and asked them, how many of you can sing? And absolutely every child in that class raised their hand. The same researcher went to a group of 21-year-old college students and asked the same question, how many of you can sing? And only one person in a whole class of 30 or so raised their hand. And what they essentially concluded, which is something that's very well known to me, is that somewhere along the way, we picked up the message, how many of you can sing well? How many of you can sing well? And indeed, I think that's a big block for a lot of folks that we work with, that we receive that metric, right, of, of how many of you can do these things well. And so much of what expressive arts challenges us to get back to is this idea that it's not about doing it well, rather it's about just doing it, because in that is where the healing power really does originate and unfold. 
So another leader that is often discussed as one of the modern mothers of expressive arts therapy as it developed in the 20th century is Natalie Rogers. So if you're not familiar with Natalie Rogers, I encourage you to just notice that last name for a moment. And as a clinician to think about where you may have heard that last name before. So indeed, Natalie Rogers is the daughter of Carl Rogers who was trained as an artist uh, as a child and growing up and really was at her father's feet when he was developing a lot of the tenets of what we consider to be person-centered therapy. And so her approach to expressive arts therapy, she has directly called person-centered expressive arts therapy, which was again developed kind of in the late 60s and 70s and then really unfolded as uh, her work went on in the decades. Her book, her kind of seminal text, which I use in my expressive arts therapy training program, which I recommend anybody to read if they're interested in the discipline of expressive arts, is a book called The Creative Connection. <coughs> and Natalie identifies these components as being the principles of person-centered expressive arts therapy. So again, you don't have to take detailed, rigid notes on this. I encourage you to mostly listen to this with your body and see if any of these really jump out at you as, yes, that's a quality that I've connected with in my own expressive or creative practice, or that's a quality that I try to impart to my clients, or maybe even that's a quality that I wish I can impart to my clients. So Natalie talks about person-centered expressive arts therapy as such that all people have an innate ability to be creative. The creative process is healing. Personal growth and higher states of consciousness are achieved through self-awareness, self-understanding, and insight. Self-awareness, understanding, and insight are achieved by delving into our emotions, and our emotions and feelings are an energy source. The expressive arts, including movement, art, writing, sound, music, meditation, and imagery, lead us to the unconscious. Art modes interrelate in what Natalie calls the creative connection. A connection exists between our life force, our inner core, or soul, and the essence of all beings. As we journey inward to discover our essence or wholeness, we discover our relatedness to the outside world. So this is indeed a very common thread in a lot of mindfulness-informed and conscious approaches to psychotherapy, that the journey inward is really what we need to be able to better deal with, cope with, ride the waves of stress, so to speak, that come with life and indeed to improve our sense of connection to others and the outside world. So staying with Natalie Rogers again for another moment, I'd like you to think of what you know about person-centered or humanistic therapy, whatever you may associate with what you've learned about Carl Rogers in your training. And the concepts that likely come up when you bring up Carl Rogers are those concepts of, uh, empathy, congruence, unconditional positive regard. And those would certainly be major components of what goes in to guiding people through an expressive arts process and indeed working with uh, expressive arts in a therapeutic context. 
where she expands on this a little bit. So you can still see this idea of empathy, congruence, unconditional positive regard. But she specifically talks about three conditions that are imperative in order for creativity to be fostered with our clients. Psychological safety, psychological freedom, and offering stimulating and challenging experiences. So this first facet here of psychological safety is where she really kind of branches it from so many of these principles of person-centered therapy. So accepting the individual as of unconditional worth. Providing a climate in which external evaluation is absent. So again, this idea that in expressive arts therapy, we don't focus on analysis or uh, outcome. And certainly this idea of the external metric is, is not a factor because that's what keeps so many people from either approaching expression or creativity in the first place. And then understanding empathetically. So creating that empathetic space for a person in which to create. She talks about psychological freedom. And I think a big part of how this plays out and how I practice expressive arts therapy is I give folks a lot of suggestions of what they can do as they approach certain practices. But I always err on the side of not being too directive. Like you have to draw in this way. You have to dance in this way. That I may give you some suggestions for facilitating movement. I may give you some suggestions for how you approach, let's say, a blank page and some art materials. But fundamentally, we're engendering a great deal of freedom in how a person may approach expressive practice. And then our third component she talks about here is offering stimulating and challenging experiences. So that's part of what I meant when I talked about helping people get out of their comfort zone when it comes to expressive practices and challenging folks that you may have the most to learn from the challenge or the practice that you resist the most. And indeed, that's a beautiful metaphor for life. And like many things in expressive arts, there's so many metaphors for life that we can glean from approaching this expressive process. So I'd like to talk a little bit about why all of what we've talked about so far can certainly have value when it comes to trauma-focused care. One of the points I want to highlight, because I'm just realizing I probably haven't been too direct about it so far, is to ask you to consider the difference between the words expressive and creative. Because creative arts therapy can certainly be a thing as well. In some states, it's actually a license that you can get licensed as a creative arts therapist. And often this idea of dance therapy, movement therapy, expressive arts therapy, art therapy, music therapy, drama therapy, kind of together, we might all call ourselves creative arts therapists, like as a larger genre. Um, but one of the values I have found in truly calling this expressive arts therapy, as opposed to creative arts therapy, is this. That create generally is more of a barrier for people than the word express. I can't tell you how many people I've worked with over the years have had things like have said things like I'm not very creative. And so much of why that barrier exists is once more some of this outside influence that to truly be creative, you have to output something that's original. 
or to truly be creative, you have to be the next big thing that would have a piece hanging in the museum or have a movie appear on Netflix or whatever it may be. Whereas expression tends to um, connote that we all have something to express, even if it's just ah, a scream at the top of our lungs, that that's an expression. And like if you think of music as an example, cover music is a huge thing. I mean, so many people recording today don't even write the songs that they sing or record and cover music is, is a huge practice in vocals and the and recording arts and uh, the whole music industry and the whole idea of cover music is that you are creating your own unique expression of that song even if you weren't the one who necessarily wrote it so expression I feel takes this edge off of the idea that I have to output something that is radically original but I can get on board with this idea that we all have something to express we all have something to express. And then through engaging in these practices for some length of time, people can end up uh, tapping into the notion that they are, in fact, creative. Uh, but that's never a requirement to start there. So I find that in working with clients who are experiencing trauma and are needing to recover from trauma, that word expressive is a lot more gentle and a lot less metric based than a word like creative. So just to make sure we're on the same page about what I mean by trauma, um, I'm not necessarily even talking about diagnosable post-traumatic stress disorder. That's one of the ways that trauma can certainly manifest. And I do a lot more lecture and content on kind of what's the difference between trauma, post-traumatic stress, and a lot of the other different clinical manifestations in which trauma can show up. My general working definition of trauma is any unhealed human wound. Because at least in a broad sense, we get the English word trauma from the Greek word meaning wound. And I encourage students to often think of this idea, well, what do we know about physical wounds and how they heal? And often what I get are things like, well, we have to kind of stop bleeding sometimes from the outside in, but to truly heal, they have to heal from the inside out that all wounds need care of some kind. And even in the case of wounds that can look rather innocuous on the surface, care could mean you still have to wash it out and dress it and give it some time, or it can get affected or infected, or it can get reagitated. That wounds can leave scars, and sometimes scars hurt depending on certain variables, and sometimes they don't. Um, but then fundamentally here, the trauma itself is not the problem because if a trauma or a wound was given proper space and chance to heal and, um, be attended to, it may go on that wound to not cause a problem in the life of the individual who experienced it. But when we have clients come to us who are impacted with symptoms for which they're seeking relief, it's usually because there's some kind of wound that never got treated or never got addressed. So that is my working definition of trauma. And of course, there's a lot more acknowledgement and awareness now that unhealed trauma can leave a significant impact on the body and our body processes. And to make a very quick explanation of that, and you can certainly read more about this on my resources site, Trauma Made Simple, and there's a lot of literature to be had in this area that when a trauma remains unprocessed or unhealed in our brain, it essentially stays stuck 
in what is an area of very high limbic level activation. So the limbic brain is our middle brain. It's kind of this central processing unit through which we input or intake information as human beings and code it as either dangerous or not dangerous. And for individuals who are still affected by trauma and wounding, um, we've not learned to certain degrees that danger has passed. And in many circumstances, if we're still living in traumatic experiences, it may not have passed. So, so much of what trauma healing has to be about is working with that limbic brain, which can manifest in such distressing symptoms in our body, like shaking, unexplained pains, hypervigilance, startling, maybe being too tired, maybe being too alert or too heightened. And we can't just talk it through because the limbic brain, which is sometimes called the mammalian brain because all mammals have one, uh, we can't access by just talking, but rather to really heal and shift how information is stored um, in our brains, we need to do the functions of the limbic brain, which is feeling. And by helping ourselves to get in touch with maybe what we didn't feel at the time of the original wound, we can activate that feeling, feel it through in as healthy and as supportive of a way as possible and help to shift it to our brain that we often call the neocortex or the cerebral cortex, which is eff effectively more efficient in long-term storage. And there are a lot of therapies that can help with that process of shifting how memories are stored in the brain. And certainly for many people, expressive arts therapy is directly what helps with them with that process. Or expressive arts can be one component of what helps them with that process. So I've already talked about in really working to heal the limbic brain, we, we have to become more comfortable with feeling, with emotion. And I will tell you, my friends, the longer I've done this work as a trauma-focused clinician, as a yoga mindfulness teacher, I'm convinced that it's not our emotions that necessarily cause us the distress. Rather, it's everything we do to keep from feeling our emotions or to keep from experiencing our emotions that causes us distress. And until that thing or that experience that we need to feel all the way through gets its proper attention it's going to stay stuck in that limbic activation and come out in other ways that can likely be problematic and symptomatic and kind of keep us stuck in this rut of life. So feeling the emotion is imperative when it comes to trauma healing, yet that prospect can be scary, especially if you've been raised in environments where it was dangerous for you to feel emotions or show emotions or express your emotions. It could be that stuffing emotion has been part of the survival complex that you've had to hold on to. Uh, it could be because you've never really let yourself have deep emotional experiences before. You may not know how to express them or experience them. So one of the values of bringing expressive arts therapy into trauma-focused care is hopefully that expressive arts practices can help ease people in to experiencing emotion and having some kind of healthy outlet for either containing our emotion or maybe further expressing them as safely as possible. So example, there's a practice that we do. We do it in EMDR therapy and a lot of other forms of trauma-focused care called the container practice, which is having a visualization of a container, something like a box with a lock that you can open or close, maybe having a bottle or a jar 
Uh, it could be a big container. It could be a backpack, but just a visual of something that you can imagine yourself kind of putting emotion into where it may not be the time or the place or the venue to show it. Because, for example, I'm a very deeply emotive person, but I sometimes have to put those away for safekeeping, let's say, to get through a workday. And having a container is not necessarily about shoving it away, but it's creating this place for safekeeping. So in expressive arts therapy, we take it beyond visualization. And it's really working with people to maybe even literally make a container. So I will use things with folks like shoe boxes or crafting boxes and encouraging people to express and create on the outside of the box whatever colors they may need, maybe images from newspapers that they may have or magazines that they may have and just to create that container as safely as possible. And then sometimes the expressive practices will help us to actually feel through these experiences and emotions we've been stuffing. So uh, dance is one of my favorite ways to do that. Also, obviously visual and writing practices and almost any expressive practice you can think of are ways to kind of access and be with those emotions. So the focus on multi-art, and I've already gotten at this before and I wanna just highlight it a little more, allows a person to explore which form of expression is the best fit for themselves and where they're comfortable at this point in their journey. So in trauma work, we talk a lot about the importance of meeting people where they're at. And when you have this buffet, so to speak, of options to offer a person, when you as an expressive arts therapist or somebody who dabbles in expressive arts has many options you can offer a person, you're automatically being more trauma-informed as opposed to we're going to dance or we're going to do art. So the focus on process and expression instead of output and analysis does offer multiple teaching points about the importance of non-striving and recovery. Non-striving is one of the attitudes of mindfulness and mindful living that I feel is absolutely important to work with folks on in their recovery process because so many people set themselves up to fail when they think they have to do something right or perfectly right away. And through any individual that I'm guiding through expressive arts process, it's really about that. Just being focused on the journey, not the destination, to kind of quote the cliche, and to see if you can take joy in expressing and noticing that and being in the moment with that, which is part of why I see expressive arts as a mindfulness practice, um, as opposed to striving or forcing on outcome. And a well-facilitated expressive arts practice will allow the therapist or the facilitator to educate clients about the value of self-compassion, about not beating oneself up, rather being open to what the process may unfold. A funny story I'd like to tell about that from my own expressive arts practice and my newest book that's out, uh, Process Not Perfection, Expressive Arts Solutions and Trauma Recovery, features one of my paintings on the cover of that book. And something I want to share about the painting is when I went to do it, I set out to create one thing. I wanted to paint on a blue background. I created a, a beautiful hand. And no matter how hard I tried to paint this hand, it was just not coming out the way I wanted. I was getting into some of those self-judgment scripts about, you know, I can't paint what I set out to paint to save my life. And this is just ugly. And so I ended up taking a paper towel and out of frustration, just kind of paper toweled away the white outline that I had tried to paint of this hand. And what ended up emerging was this beautiful flower-like cloud 
And I said, wow, that's really kind of neat. And then I dappled a few other colors in and took the paper towel to it once more. And it was this kind of flower in a cloud type image that ended up emerging. And I put some little finishing touches on it. And it's one of my absolute favorite paintings. And a lesson in that is it's completely different than what I set out to do. Yet the process took me and my work exactly where it needed to be. And obviously I've experienced so many uh, moments like that with clients and people I've facilitated in the community. And I think that's such a powerful metaphor for what mindful recovery is about. Couple other points here are that the expressive arts practices encompass action-based intervention in many channels of sensory channels of experience. And I already said that talk is not enough when it comes to trauma. There's so much I can teach about the neuroscience, but in an hour-long podcast, that's my summary point. That just talking is not enough when it comes to trauma, that we really have to work with folks on action-based interventions with doing. Um, and that really is how we heal the whole brain. Uh, as it relates to working with trauma. And so any expressive practice you're doing is action-based, whether you're picking up uh, paintbrushes or markers or crayons, taking the paper towel in frustration, dancing or movement can be forms of movement and doing. Writing, even though we think of writing as very verbal, you're actually moving the body, whether you're typing or whether you're writing, that uh, these actionable interventions that the expressive arts work with uh, are very healing at the level of the whole brain, or at the levels, I should say, of the entire brain. So the multi-art process we've mentioned can also challenge a person to step outside of their comfort zone with emotional expression. Uh, and it may feel a lot less threatening to do it, let's say, in a visual practice in an office that is set up to be a safe, supportive, exploratory space than just to kind of have this big cathartic experience where you're crying and feel like it has nowhere to go. A well-facilitated expressive arts process really kind of gives these emotions somewhere to go. And it can guide a person into expanding what we call their affective window of tolerance as gently as possible. Um, and I know very often if I'm dancing or moving or writing or drawing or painting, whatever it may be, I do feel kind of safer to be with that emotional experience. Expressive arts practices are beautiful at complementing work alongside many well-established interventions for trauma. So whether you do CBT, whether you do more of gestalt type approaches, even 12-step facilitation, DBT. Um, there's several people in my network who are DBT therapists. Um, one even runs an intensive outpatient DBT program. And every week they're working with the DBT skill of focus but using a different expressive practice each day. So one day it's writing, one day it's yoga, one day it's dance, uh, one day it's visual arts to work with a skill like radical acceptance or wise mind. Uh, I've mentioned that I'm an EMDR therapist. And even though the EMDR protocol itself can be very eh, kind of procedural and rigid and clunky that even in very traditional forms of EMDR, there's a lot of room and permission that EMDR therapists are given to help prepare a person 
for what may come up in the EMDR process. Even our whole phase two in EMDR is called preparation and phase seven is called closure. And that's where we work with clients on a session by session basis to kind of wrap up or contain what may have come up in a session that they may not have time to work with and then develop a way to continue managing what may emerge as processing continues in between sessions. And I know in a lot of very traditional EMDR trainings, there's a line that's given, well, processing can continue in between sessions, use your coping skills. And working expressive arts into EMDR gives us uh, a wider depth and breadth of skills that we can give people to use in between sessions if emotion continues to manifest. Uh, visual journaling is a practice that can be particularly beautiful for this. Poetry writing, traditional journaling, making playlists is a strategy that I use with a lot of my EMDR clients to have them um, kind of put together a set of music that they can listen to in order to stay grounded or to stay contained. Uh, maybe another playlist helps them work with more emotion that's coming up and they can either use those playlists for the purpose of listening or maybe they're open to working with some movement and then like many things in expressive arts therapy an all of the above experience can happen. So the last thing I really want to focus on here is an example of how you can take just about any well-established, well-known clinical skill and build an expressive arts process around it. So uh, one other little point of terminology is in expressive arts therapy, we use process as both a verb and a noun. So obviously I've talked about processing, being in process, using this idea of not focusing on outcome but the noun form is this idea of process as a collection of practices. So for example, you can take a well-established clinical skill like grounding, grounding and build a process around it. So by definition, a process would be a collection of two or more practices. So that's kind of more process the noun, but then we help a person to process what may be coming up or to stay in process and not stay forced on outcome when they're working with the concept like grounding. So regardless of your clinical orientation, it's very likely that you have worked with grounding as a concept before. Obviously, it's big in any trauma-focused modality like DBT, somatic experiencing, EMDR therapy. Uh, and my favorite working definition of grounding, and this is kind of my wording based on a combination of several other sources, is using all of our available senses to come into the here and now. So using all of our available senses to come into the here and now, which includes our body sensations, and using this expressive arts idea, it's really using all available practices to be able to come into the here and now. So grounding is an absolutely vital skill if you're working in trauma-focused care. Um, for example, just kind of citing SAMHSA here, the Substance Abuse Mental Health Services Administration, and their treatment improvement protocol on trauma, grounding techniques are important skills for everybody who works in human services to have. So not just counselors or social workers or psychologists, but nurses, uh, people who work in support uh, security, anybody who works at an agency or in a hospital ought to have some basic skills on how to ground a person. So in a traditional sense, we often talk about things like 
look around the room and tell me five things that you see. Maybe look around the room, scan it with your senses. Maybe it's pressing your feet into the ground. Uh, it could be running in place, jumping in place, maybe holding a rock in your hand, that those are all very well-established and well-known grounding skills. That's obviously a bare minimum that we want people in human services to have. And then if you are trained in other approaches to trauma therapy, like EMDR and somatic experiencing, if processing in those modalities begins to overwhelm a person, it's important that you have some grounding strategies in place to uh, reasonably stabilize them, let's say before a session ends or to give them that respite or refuge if they are outside of their affective window of tolerance. So in the preparation stages of EMDR or any other trauma-focused modality, I know I use EMDR language a lot it's just because that's my main uh, non-expressive arts clinical modality, but please feel free to insert whichever modality in which you may primarily work. Uh, but in the preparation stages of something like EMDR, I'm often taking a person through an expressive arts process on the concept of grounding. So because of the nature of this teaching, because it is a podcast, uh, I'm going to explain to you a little bit of how I would take a person through a grounding process. And I hope to give you enough instruction that you can try this on your own. Once you're done listening to the podcast, I will end my talk giving you some resources about where you can access a lot of my material on a complimentary basis online if you feel you need a little more instruction or help in working with these concepts. So when I'm starting a grounding process, so what I will talk you through is the process is grounding and I will use six practices. So when I teach this in a group or in a class, there's generally time to go through six practices in the process of grounding. If you have to modify due to time, let's say you have a shortened session or the client needs extra time, you can certainly pick any three of these as a way to modify this process of grounding. So traditionally what I do is I start with a traditional grounding visualization. Uh, one of my favorites is to use a visualization called grounding tree, which is where you have a person sense into or imagine and visualize and work with all their senses a tree, either a tree that's very personal for them or a tree that they see as uniquely strong and grounding. And then you can walk them through the visualization of the tree. And if you want to take on more of a dramatic component to it, um, this is a technique used a lot in psychomotor or in um, drama therapy, you can have the person actually take on the role of the tree. So whether they're actually standing up to do it or sitting down and imagining themselves taking on the role of the tree, you can continue to work through the visualization and have a person notice what they notice both at the level of their body, maybe there's an affirmation they can hold on to as a tree. Like I am strong, I am present, I am here, I am aware. So I do have a free video for this that you can access on my resources site, traumamadesimple.com. Then where I would go in the second practice is to work with a yoga pose called tree pose. So if you practice yoga, tree is one of the classic poses of yoga. It's a series of balance 
uh, options you can give a person to challenge their balance, but essentially take on the role of the tree in this very embodied way. And I also have a video for tree pose on the resources site I mentioned, traumamadesimple.com, if you'd like to see me take you through that in a video form. Then where I would move from tree pose, the physical practice, is to go a little bit more into what I'd call like a dancing mindfulness type intervention, which is moving the branches. So maybe you have a person use their arms to have them grow what are essentially branches off of the core of their body. And then sometimes I play music. Uh, the Wind by Cat Stevens is one of my favorite for the purposes. And have them imagine that wind or breeze is blowing and how might their branches move while they stay grounded. So I think that's one of the reasons the tree works very well as a visualization for a person who's willing to go there, is that trees move. Trees need to be pliable and flexible in the wind, um, even though that they fundamentally stay grounded and rooted. And when I walk people through the visualizations, I have them use the power of their imagination to make the roots be as strong and as deep as they need to go so that the tree doesn't fall over, but fundamentally stays grounded. Then from there, I move into a practice that is called gush art. So this would be the fourth practice in the process. And gush art is a term often used in expressive arts that means free form art. Just kind of go with it. Uh, so I might, I always keep supplies in my office and when I do workshops and I basically tell people just do what you would like to do. Some people do need more direction, both with movement and with art and with writing. So if they need more direction, I'll encourage them to stay in this idea of the tree. So how can you, your gush art, help you bring this tree to life or what you're learning about the tree to life? And then from gush art, then I like to move into writing, which from gush art, sorry about that. From gush art, I like to move into writing, which is a lot of different places you can take it. So I tend to call expressive arts writing this process of taking it to the page. So it's letting you continue to flow with where you may need to go. Uh, and you could do free form writing, but once more, if a person needs more direction, you may encourage them to continue writing about the tree. If a tree had a message for you, what would that message be? Is there a poem that's coming out about the tree? And a little hint for people who say, I can't write poetry. Bear this in mind. All a poem is, doesn't have to rhyme, you determine where the lines end versus in prose, the kind of natural flow of how you're typing or how you're writing, and then that goes on to the next line, that determines where a line would end. So poetry, you're in control. And if you know anything about poetry, they can take on all different types of forms and shapes and, and what they look like. And then after taking it to the page, then I move into a practice called hold your ground, which is this idea of working with rocks. And we, a lot of us know about working with rocks as a way to create grounding. And I keep a lot of different varieties of rocks in my office and at workshops that people can choose to kind of which rock is drawing to them. And from there, I will lead a little bit of a meditation on just noticing the weight of the rock in the hand, notice what the rock is teaching you about grounding. And then if you like, you can invite a person, if you have the supplies for this, to paint a rock or to write one word on the rock that really thematically kind of sums up what they've learned about grounding 
and being here and now during this process. So one of the other reasons I like to bring in rock is I call that practice hold your ground because it's often something very tangible that a person can carry with them. If a person doesn't respond well to the metaphor of the tree, uh, the rock might be a better metaphor, nature speaking for grounding. And the thing about expressive arts as trauma informed is any of these can be modified. Uh, so if a client doesn't really want to go there with a tree visualization, I may ask, is there an element that you do see as very strong and grounding? And it could be a mountain and you can walk them through a lot of the same principles of these meditations using another element like, like a mountain. So those are some of examples of how I might use practices in the different art forms to build a process on a clinical concept like grounding. And then one other big part of expressive arts therapy I want to at least expose you to here is how one gives feedback in expressive arts. So again, you're not making comments like that's beautiful. Because even if you say something like that's beautiful to a client, that's still very judgmental, metric-focused language. So we encourage, whether you're in groups sharing with each other, whether you're a clinician sharing with a client, to avoid using that judgmental language, even statements like that was beautiful, because then people may continue to pursue art simply for the sake of making you happy, as opposed to it truly being an expressive outlet. So like with a lot of therapeutic techniques we use in offering feedback, we encourage to offer feedback from the I perspective. So you can certainly say, I feel very confused when I look at what you drew, or I feel very light in my heart when I'm watching you dance. And this is what I'm experiencing. And then when you, as the giver of feedback, share that, then the hope is that it promotes conversation that allows the client to draw a lot of their own conclusions. And you can even say things like, I notice you use a lot of red hair. And then you as the clinician wouldn't interpret what that necessarily means, but it then elicits the conversation. This whole idea that it's all grist for the mill. And that's one of the reasons I really, really like expressive arts therapy is any process leads to conversation, leads to insights that allow clients to arrive at many of their own conclusions that are currently connected to concepts that they're working on in their therapeutic journey. So a couple other closing points I want to make. Um, one kind of speaks to the general field of what we call expressive arts. And this is another reason that I really like IATA as an organization, International Expressive Arts Therapy Association. So even the International Expressive Arts Therapy Association offers two different credentials. And this may be useful to you if what I've shared today really picks your interest and you want more. And maybe this is something you're considering to explore as a certification or as a uh, professional registration. That the two credentials they offer are Registered Expressive Arts Therapist and Registered Expressive Arts Consultant and Educator. So expressive arts therapist credential is for those of us who do clinical work. And so it applies or implies the use of expressive arts to our therapeutic processes. But the credential for educator consultant um, empowers other professionals who are not necessarily clinicians 
to be able to use the expressive arts in their work. So classroom educators, yoga teachers. Uh, for example, my primary expressive arts teacher, her PhD is in Christian spirituality and spiritual direction. And so through her pastoral ministry is where she uses a lot of her expressive arts work. So that's, that's this idea that expressive arts belongs to everybody. It's not just something for professional clinicians. And I, I really get behind that. And obviously those of us who are professional clinicians can use this in more of our scope of practice in that realm. But other professionals are also empowered to use a lot of these same concepts and processes in their realm as well. So obviously, like a lot of things that are overviewed on a podcast like this, if you feel you have the personal grounding in a lot of these types of practices to be able to share some elements of it with people, there's a lot that can be had just by reviewing some of the videos I talked about, and maybe you feel compelled to share some of those uh, strategies in practice. So traumamadesimple.com is the best of all of my websites that I can lead you to for uh, getting a lot of these resources. Um, my newest book, Process Not Perfection, Expressive Art Solutions in Trauma Recovery, uh, takes the, some of the concepts I just touched on today and goes even deeper. And how that book is organized is we look at 15 different expressive arts processes and there's six to seven practices in each process. And they line up with the three essential phases of trauma recovery, stabilization, processing or going deeper, and then reintegration. And so it's a book that I've compiled for people in the general public to use who are looking to work with the expressive arts to shepherd some of their own healing experiences, or it's something that can be used in companionship with a therapeutic or other healing arts process. So that's another resource I can recommend. If you're wanting more on the field in general, please go to iata.org, I-E-A-T-A.org, and you can read all about different ways to train and procure professional registration if that's something that interests you. And you're also welcome to visit the website of my company, instituteforcreativemindfulness.com, to read a little bit more about our work and our training processes and programs and expressive arts therapy. So on a closing note, I just want to affirm that all of you have the capacity to express. And if you already know this and are in this vibe with your life and your process, keep it flowing. If you feel like this is something that intrigues you and you haven't yet tried, pick up the pen, move the body, get out the markers, maybe make some music, especially if you have some maybe training in the past and haven't put out an instrument or played out an instrument in a while. Could be just using your hands on the table to create a drum. You all have something to express, and that is a truth that we embrace and work with in expressive arts therapy and the more that you're able to foster this capacity for yourself the better able you'll be able to share this truth of your and our expressive birthright with your clients and with the people that you serve you've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by clearly clinical if you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.